Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Matthew Can Fox be- from... Wait, oh, right, no. see, now here's okay. what's happening. It's Monday and he's all fired up. <laughs> Just, this is... Too much. I, I remember hosting. Hooliganry. <laughs> I remember hosting. Also they, but yes, totally understand what you mean. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, good. Uh, I think cellist is uh, going to be my superpower for today. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're talking about Minute 96, which begins with Red and her ledger and ends with They Are Not Soldiers. Back on the show, sadly, for the last time this season, it is Matthew Fox. Hello, Matthew. You know, I'm watching this thinking I want Tony Stark to take the Kobayashi Maru. Because I think there's this sort of that that same dynamic of when you are always so confident, when you're always so sure that you can find the third way, that you can not have to make the terrible sacrifice or the terrible choice, but figure something out that that is, I think, at the heart of the Kobayashi Maru, even though J.J. Abrams fundamentally didn't understand it, but that's a different question entirely. That's kind of what's happening here is that Tony, like, Cap, I think, is you know, he cares deeply for this guy, Colson, who he barely knew, who clearly um, Stark did. But Tony Stark, Cap is more okay with it because he's used to the idea that even if you do everything right, people are going to die. Stark isn't. Um, sorry, I had to jump right in there, but I just was watching it just again right now. I was like, oh, this is such a Kobayashi Maru moment. No, it really is a Kobayashi Maru moment. And I think what's so interesting about this bit of dialogue, and again, I'm leaning in on you jumping over another art thing I want to come back to, is that. Steve's perspective to me here is I need to know who this guy was to you and your team because I've been frozen for 70 years. Was he your Bucky? Because if he was your Mm. Bucky, I lost that soldier and that was rough. Right. So it just feels like we're trying to trying to get some emotional equilibrium and it's not quite working because Tony is Tony. Yeah. It's, Sorry, Andy. Did you have no, a point? No, no. Today? <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it is a great, uh, it, it's an interesting moment between the two of them. And it really plays into this, uh, the relationship that they have with Colson. Because again, Colson is such a, a pivotal or has been written to be such a pivotal character for, uh, for all of these people to kind of come together and unify here. And this is the moment. And of course, you know, Tony comes to the place where Colson died. We're going to see in, t- in tomorrow's minute where he's like looking at the blood stain on the wall, everything. I mean, it's, it really is kind of coming to this point where, uh, they are seeing they're, they're, they're really kind of, I mean, this is, as we've said, we're in kind of the very low point, the end of the second act before everything kicks into high gear as they figure out the plan and, and move things to, uh, to get act three going. But there really is this, uh, this sense between these two characters as to the different perspectives on everything that is going on between the two of them. And it's it's an interesting read on, I guess, just everything that Fury is trying to do with the nature of the Avengers initiative and, and how they've, up to this point, viewed themselves as a part of it. You know, like, are they part of the team or are they just here just to be kind of, I'm going to be, because, I mean, clearly at the end of this minute, I mean, Tony says we're not soldiers. Like, he very much doesn't see himself as part of, like, this military outfit that is going out doing things, these things. But he's here to help, and he wants to fight for what's right. It's it's an interesting perspective, and maybe that's, I, I don't know, is it what we need? Is it what we need these characters, like, the what all of these characters need to kind of, like, 
go through in order to come together? I think there's some nature of it. And I, I do think there's other ways you could do it. And again, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche that works. And I think a part of it's also is that if you think about it, of the superheroes, none of them were ever in any true real danger. Two of them literally fall out of an airplane, out of a flying thing, 30, 40, 50,000 feet to the ground, no parachutes, and they're fine. Like Banner, you know, his clothes go away and Thor has, you know, some moral <laughs> questioning. But like, and, and Cap and, and Tony, like, yeah, there was some danger they faced in that battle. But all four of them know that they are fairly invulnerable to most kinds of danger. And yet, the civilian who is caught up in them, who literally hero worshipped one of them, he's the one who died. I think I think it's kind of important that it's a reminder of the stakes that they're facing. You know that Tony might want to wait for the perfect moment, but that the danger is very real, and that already eighty people have been killed. Now eighty-one, if we include Coulson plus all of the others. So, so to me, that's the real power of that moment: is that it's the it's the humanizing of Coulson, and it's a reminder that that Coulson is the everyman for all the people who are at risk of dying if they all decide, like, I can't be part of this mission because it's not morally perfect. Yeah, we, we've got sort of two sides of this equation, right? One is, oh, we're, we're as the audience, supposed to feel like the, the you know, superheroes are looking out for us because they have, even though they're invulnerable, they have the weight of the of our lives on their own shoulders. And then the other side of it is, like, this is Coulson, he did not have invulnerability and still wasn't afraid to stand up for what was right. And so, you know, again, at what cost humanity is is the question that we kind of keep coming back to. And Coulson is an avatar for you do the right thing no matter the stakes. And you could really even say the old man in Germany is the precursor yes, to Coulson, right. too. Yeah. He also stands up in the face of, of tyranny and, and is 100%. willing to sacrifice himself if need be. And I think there's an element, and here I will come in and say that I'm often the person who defends Tony a little bit and is not just going to always be Cap is right. I think there's an element to which both of them are right, in that Cap is the the old-fashioned notions that Nick Fury talks about, and that he is the, you should just stand up instead, even if it's, you know, going to get you killed. Whereas Tony is the you know, kind of General Patton's idea of a hero doesn't die nobly for his country, a hero makes the other poor son of a bitch die for his country. As we will see two movies later, Cap's idea of you follow the orders, you do what's right, you listen to your commanding officers because they're there's who in control and you be a good soldier proves to be spectacularly wrong when it comes to Winter Soldier. To some extent, all of um, Tony's ideas of I just don't trust Nick Fury, and so I don't want to sign up to be his soldier, are kind of proven right by, you know, granted, Nick Fury wasn't, Nick Fury didn't cause Hydra to take over for S.H.I.E.L.D., but he certainly, I mean, he turned as much of a blind eye to it as the Jedi do to Palpatine taking over, and I think holds just as much responsibility. Um, as I try to see just how many pop culture references I can drop in 10 minutes. <laughs> that was a blooming, um, blooming onion. Right? But like, <laughs> I, I think that's what makes this scene so good, is I don't think either one of them is clearly right or wrong. I think there's a fundamental tension that they're trying to hold of, if we go too far to Cap's idea, we all die nobly, but we lose. If we go too far to, to Tony's idea, the Phil Coulson's die instead of us, and we never actually suit up for battle. 
to me, it kind of speaks to that idea that we were talking about in the first episode about the problem when the team up movie, they never actually stay teamed up. I think the best parts of the Avengers are when they realize that both Cap and Tony each hold a fundamental idea of the truth. And what the, what the Avengers need is the two of them in tension with each other, not letting either one go too far to an extreme. And I think that's what makes this scene so good. It's interesting thinking about Tony as this character who, you know, the whole idea of, you know, Steve, the way Tony reacts when Steve asks him, is this the first time you've lost a soldier? It's like Tony is almost like, uh, you know, for for you to have the gall to ask me that question, you know, we are not soldiers. Like, it's such an interesting sense of anger that he has in that. And I don't know if there's also this angle of him like his the the way that his dad died serving the military and essentially what i mean it's it's interesting that this is coming from him because he has been serving for the bulk of his life along with his father the military industrial complex and he's not a soldier but hey i've been putting guns in their hands for decades now and it's just it's an interesting shift for him to set, to now be taking like ever since that first iron man movie to really be rewriting his his lineage and, and just trying to put himself into a different perspective, I suppose. Well, and that he's rewriting Cap's, right? That's the unfair part of this, because Cap is a soldier. That's That's the entire gestalt of Captain America, right? Is he might have spent a lot of time on the bandstand, fine, but at his peak, he was a soldier fighting with an organized unit and and yet, his most heroic app as Cap is when he directly disobeys orders. Disobeyed orders, but not without the intention of doing it for the right reasons, right? He he never did it for for profit, right? And and that's what Tony's done. But that's what a soldier shouldn't do, though. Right? Take you mean take take uh, take actions into his own yeah. hands? Yeah, right. yeah. Whether it's for whether it's for the right reasons or not, that is act- exactly what a, how a soldier does not act, and that's one thing that we got with Steve throughout that film is he is the worst at being a soldier because he's constantly breaking orders, and you can't do that as a soldier. But that's why they made him a captain so that he could get away with that kind of crap. Here's again why I I. I don't love that movie as much as many other people do because I, I i've studied enough about the economics of war to know that as glorious as the battles that cap fights are with the exception of his final showdown against red skull i think he saves more lives selling war bonds because you can't fight a war if your soldiers can't eat and don't have things to fire that unfortunately is a coen brothers movie it's very very different it's just <laughs> captain america selling war bonds and it might might actually be wes anderson a lot of fun yeah with that. but yeah but i i think I, mean, I remember when i first heard about civil war the movie coming out and i didn't really know much about either of these characters and you told me the movie was about should these you know, heroes be soldiers in a larger army that is accountable. I thought, oh, of course, that makes sense. Cap is going to be the one who wants them all to follow orders, and Tony is going to be the one who is like, no, you know, we're, we're iconoclasts. We do our own thing. And the fact that their characters were reversed made no sense to me until I realized that's the whole point of Cap's character is that starting in the first Avenger, he realizes that just following orders. And I think... That's part of where he is in this movie is that he 
he starts the movie hopeful that this time it's different, that this is a different army, that this is a different situation. And over the course of the movie, he comes to realize Fury is lying to him as much as anybody else in the 1940s army ever did, that it's just as corrupt, that it's just as problematic, and that, as we'll learn later, later in other movies, he sometimes has to go do the thing that other people tell him not to do. But I think in this movie, and I, I think we have to give more credit to Cap than that right now in this scene, because it kind of doesn't matter if he is or is not a soldier by this definition of whether soldiers should take matters into their own hands. What matters most is how does Cap see himself, right, as an avatar for the the greatness of his role and his participation in doing the right thing and making sure he's a he's a bannerhead of doing the right thing for others. And Tony is like he hasn't Cap hasn't yet come to the to terms with the fact that he's not a very good one for the exactly those reasons. And here, this is part of their conflict. Mm -hmm. Does that hold any water? Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I think it's a good way to put it. Well, this this is the moment, though. And I guess we never really saw the shift for Steve. Because I mean, you know, as we're at the bottom, these characters have to start making the turns so that we can so they change their mindsets and, and actually go and save the day, which is, you know, what where the film needs to go. It's just kind of the the structure of a story like this. Uh, Tony is he left that meeting. And the last time we saw Steve, like Fury had guilt tripped him with these bloody cards of Colson's and, you know, threw them on the table and Tony sees them. And that's kind of where we've left, or sorry, that's Steve uh, looking at these cars. And that's where we left Steve looking at this, these cars that were on the table as Tony storms out. This is, so I guess between then and now when Steve makes this decision to come in here and actually have this conversation with Tony, it's kind of like he's made that turn and he has now I guess the first character has made the, like turned the corner and shifted it. Maybe not the first, because I guess you could argue uh, Natasha already is like, we've got to do everything we can to stop this guy. And so I suppose we're at this point where these characters are all turning. And so Steve, we don't really see him make the turn, but he, by coming in here and having this conversation with Tony in the first place, that's really telling us, okay, Hey, I am now wanting to make a team. I'm needing to step into the boots of a leader and do what I can to bring a team together. And that's kind of what we're getting with him as he comes in here. And it's just interesting that his approach, just like Fury's, is to is to kind of approach Tony via Phil. And again, maybe that's just because this film, the writer who really is good at crafting these audience surrogates, who then he kills, um, like maybe that's exactly the intent. Like, let's now use this character to the best of our advantage to bring the characters together. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's exactly it. Like, and, and we don't necessarily have to think like going through the emotional Colson route is kind of low hanging fruit because it's literally the last thing we were talking about. But, but also it allows us a pretty efficient bit of dialogue what 10 lines that actually lead us from uh there was a cellist to uh you know we're not soldiers and then almost immediately into wait a minute i think i figured it out which will resolve in coming minutes again it's the turns that some of these characters take that uh seem a little like why does that why does figuring it out make for tony hey i want to be part of the team now like you know these are questions that 
uh, I think could be asked, but, you know, I don't think the film wants to ask them. It's just like, you know, just by making that realization, hey, I'm, I'm good now. Let's let's move forward. But again, that's that's future minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I, I won't be on those minutes. I would just say a bit in the defense of the movie in that regard. I think it does work because it's a mi- it's a mirror. He's he's and one thing I think we've seen about Tony Stark is that other characters, particularly like you know Obadiah Stane or someone like that, are are comfortable with their own malfeasance and nefariousness. For Tony, it's that he very much has his head in the sand, but that and, and for him, it's not it, because it's that hedonism and it's about moral escapism. But every time someone actually holds up a mirror to him and says, "Hey." You need to take a look and realize these are the choices you're making, and this is either the harm you've caused or that someone who is similar is causing. That is always what causes him to turn. That's what causes him to realize, I need to do something more. Um, so I guess for me, that of all the things in the movie that feel kind of contrived or that don't work, I, I, that's not one of them. I do think that that, that does work to me as, as what, what pushes him around, what pushes him to the other side and why he, again, much later in the movie, in that very powerful moment, is willing to say, Cap, you call the play, and not try to be the leader. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting scene, and you know we'll continue our conversation about it tomorrow. Let's jump back, though. We kind of jumped right into this one, but we do want to wrap up our conversation that we have in the sick bay between uh, Natasha and Clint. And it's really, I mean, there's really not much there, but Pete, I know you still had a point here, because this is Natasha coming into the scene saying, I've been compromised, and then bringing it all back around to the I've got red in my ledger, I'd like to wipe it out. So we know that there's red in her ledger. I don't understand why she is, because the last time she used that line was with Loki, right? I'm not crazy. Now she's coming here, and she's using that same line with Clint to what end? Why? I think there's a couple things. First, I think it it underlines the point that although she was able to always, well, first of all, let me just say I feel like I've been compromised because I we all got sucked <laughs> into this conversation about Joss Whedon and misogyny and the way Natasha is written, all of which I think is true. But I think now that I've seen the, the end of that sentence, I want to walk back some of what I said in last minute. Because I, I now don't think we're ever supposed to think that she means she was compromised by Loki. I think she just means she has been compromised in general. To me, she kind of means it in two ways, one of which is the, like, I've got red in my ledger, but also that she's been compromised by guilt in the way that she's trying to tell uh, Barton not to let happen to him. I think a second thing it does is to show that while, yes, she was faking and that, yes, she had, she was always in that in control of that scene with Loki, that he did touch a sore spot, that there, that, you know, what he was doing of trying to make her feel afraid and trying to make her feel guilty, that there is something really there. It's just that she's able to control it in a way Loki didn't think. And the last thing to me is that it, 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 it serves as a way to sort of say to Clint, so you can't just let yourself emotionally wallow. You know, again, like what Clint then will later say to Scarlet Witch in Ultron, it's her saying, I have read in my ledger but instead of saying, therefore, I should be out of the fight, I should go mope and, and you know, say, you know, a hundred I'm sorry is I should get back in the fight because that's the only way I can clear the ledger is by doing good. 
I guess it's there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, the way you I both th- took these deep breaths of like, <sighs> <sighs> all had right. I kept talking after that, we would have been speaking in unison. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it is one of these scenes that I think, and again, it's, it's frustrating that it is split across these two minutes, but just the way that that whole, the way that she reacts to Barton. And I mean, yes, I think, as you said, Loki did affect her with the things that he was saying and some of her reaction while it was real was uh, not done to a point where it overpowered her ability to stay on top of all of it so that she could still play her game with Loki. I'm not going to get into my whole new read on the situation about how Loki was still actually playing her and came out on top of that whole thing. But I do think that there is this side where sure he did affect her a little bit, um, but she's able to kind of uh, soldier on, so to speak, or spy on as we find out she's not a soldier. <laughs> yeah, we're not allowed to use that. That word is too loaded now. <laughs> right. She, uh, But she's able to kind of like work her way through it and still come out on top. But still, I don't know. It's just such a strange thing to your point, Pete, about like, why is the whole thing about bringing up the red in her ledger again? And is, is like, I don't know. She uses that last time is just like, yeah, I, you know, there's red in my ledger. I want to like wipe it out. And here it's just like, okay, so now you're saying the exact same thing. Does that mean that just by going now and, and fighting Loki, this is going to wipe the red out of your ledger? Um, but what, does that, do you say red? that every time you're about to go into a new fight? It's like, yeah, everything is just putting more red in your ledger. It's, it's just, just so much more red. It's all red. Her ledger's red. Let's just for for just say for the sake of argument, we all know her ledger is red. And by we, I mean, everybody in the MCU, all the characters know. Shouldn't Clint know that her ledger is the most red? Like if the, if we're to buy that their relationship is what it is. He knows where she comes from. He knows what she's done. He knows her secrets. Let, let's just, I, I feel like that's what they want me to believe. So why does she need to make this argument to him in particular? When she did it with Loki, it made a lot of sense to me because there's part of the manipulation she was trying to play that character. For for this, this is the part of the problem that I have trouble with, the the actual act of portraying the written word. It doesn't make sense for the character to say this. It only makes sense for the character to say this for me, whom the writer thinks is dumb. Maybe what it is is actually because this is coming on the point where, you know, they had just talked about the fact that he had also killed some people. Maybe she's letting him know, I've got red in my ledger. I'd like to wipe it out. You now have red in your ledger. Let's go wipe it out together. Yeah, I think it does make sense, but but in two ways, one of which I, I don't love, the other which I, I love. The way I don't love is, I think this, what you're saying, Pete, others read in the ledger, is not how she means read. Because I think that the fundamental basis of all of these movies is that violence used for a good cause is morally superior to violence done for a not good cause, which I do to some extent agree with. I'm no longer a nonviolent, you know, pacifist when it comes to bringing about, you know, the, the changes that I think our world needs sometimes. But I do think that these movies find it very easily to excuse violence, you know, and then like, I think it's interesting that it's the, the PG-13 movies never show gore. They never show the messiness, the unpleasantness of violence. They save that for the, the R-rated stuff on the TV shows that's supposed to be more morally gray. And 
So I don't agree with her, the way she views the ledger, but I think that is how she views the ledger. The other part of it, though, makes sense to me because I think part, I think there's two things happening. One is that she was trying to tell him not to feel guilty. It didn't work. And so she is shifting tactics somewhat and saying, okay, well, I get that you have that read in your ledger, but I do too. I've decided that the only way to fix it is to keep using the tools I have, but use them for better reasons. And the last part of this is there is now a whole set of internet content around the idea of how common it is to say to somebody else, hey, here's some really good advice that, by the way, I don't follow. You know, because it's very easy to say you shouldn't let yourself feel guilty about the things you were doing while you were being controlled, while you were being gaslit. But by the way, I do that all the time. While there's a compromise here, I don't think it is bad writing. I think it's actually quite good writing because to me, it makes total sense that Natasha would both fully believe that Clint should not feel like he has read in his ledger based on what he did, but would for her. Because the idea that I can come up with all these moral rules others should follow, but they don't apply to me, it makes no sense, but it is incredibly common in the human condition. Well, it certainly is. And to that point, like, you know, never have I spoken as ill of someone else in real life as I speak to myself in my own head. Exactly. Right. Like, that's kind of the idea. And and I I totally get that. I'm just talking about. Is there a world in which this scene. Let Renner or let Hawkeye talk a little bit and then was otherwise silence and letting them speak and grieve through body language and getting water for for Clint and doing all those things like it, this is one of those sequences these minutes that I feel like as we reach the end of them are they just feel wildly overwritten and not performative enough like I know both of these actors are capable of doing so much more and it feels overwritten the fact that we're having to jump through these flaming logical hoops to recanonize what they're saying is a sign to me that this is overwritten and we just need to feel what they're feeling and having them talk about red ledgers isn't getting us any closer to that well and i think that it really i mean it just boils down to the fact that this is it is a script and that we have all of these actors playing these things. Jeremy Renner has unfortunately been cast as a bad guy for the bulk of it. And you know what? They're saying, let's give him a chance to explore some of the stuff that he's just gone through. And so they're putting it in here and it's not necessarily helpful. It's not necessarily needed, but we're going to throw it in here anyway. And, uh, you know, we need it here to get us through this emotional beat in the film and to give the actor something to do so that he's not complaining that he was just misused. So that's, that's, I think where we left. It does not feel as overwritten to me as some of the other scenes do, but I would certainly agree that her using the exact same metaphor word for word feels kind of lazy. Like that, that, you know, that should only be if it's a kind of like, you know, Oh, Tahiti, it's a wonderful place. It's a magical place Mm -hmm. where like, she has had that particular phrase drilled into her so much that it's almost like a, a, a you know, conditioned response. That's not the case. So, yeah, I, I, I think it would have worked better if she used a different metaphor. Exactly. Well, this is a good place to wrap up today's minute. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with Dino Carroll, a playwright, to talk about uh, a few minutes uh, this week. Should be fun. Uh, so, Matthew, tell everybody and one last time about uh, where they can tune into your shows and uh, listen along. Sure. Uh, the, the two podcasts are called Superhero Ethics, Two Words, and 
Star Wars Universe Podcast. And if you just search for them on wherever you go podcasts, you'll find them. You can also go to theethicalpanda.com. And of course, you can go to True Story FM, truestory.fm, uh, because I have now officially joined the uh, True Story family of podcasts. And so uh, we had a Patreon for a while. We're now going to, I think it will be up by the time we get all this sorted out. Uh, just be, you can become a member. I do bonus content at the end of every episode. Uh, at the end of most episodes, sometimes it's three in the morning and the human body is just not capable. But it's a lot of great stuff. Uh, would love to have you as a listener. Would love to uh, hear what you have to say about all these topics. So please tune in. And of course, tune in to all the other great stuff on True Story FM. Check it all out. We'll have the links in the show notes, everybody. Remember, if you're not seeing them in your podcatcher, just go to marvelmovieminute.com and you can get all the information there. That's it for today. So, uh, Pete, thanks as always. Oh, Andy, tomorrow we're going to get freaking fifey. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.